I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans 12. Uh, I would, this is the uh, last opportunity I have to speak to you this summer. Uh, starting week after next, I'll be gone for a month uh, preaching out in four different camps. So I would greatly appreciate uh, your prayers as I'm gone during that time. I'll be out preaching. My wife will be uh, traveling. She'll be going to Salt Lake City to see uh, five out of five of our grandchildren. So she is deliriously happy about leaving Greenville and going to see grandchildren. So that's, that's our next month. I want us to look this morning at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and uh, obviously a very familiar verse. And so my intention this morning is to take more of a microscopic look at a phrase that we find in this verse and then take the phrase and try to do my best to expand its meaning. So we read in Romans 12 and verse 2 the words of Paul where he is urging believers to, to commit their lives to the Lord. And then verse 2 he says, And be not conformed to this world, but, that is in contrast, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'd like to talk to you this morning on that phrase where it says, be ye or you be transformed. Now, what Paul is telling us here is the the Christian life is described as a transformation. That word transform is the word for metamorphosis. It's like a caterpillar going into a cocoon and two weeks later, it breaks out, transformed into a stunningly beautiful butterfly. It's the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 17 of his gospel in verse 2 when he speaks about the transfiguration of Jesus. That is his transformation. Where he's on a high mountain with Peter, James, and John, and suddenly his face begins to shine like the sun And his clothes become radiant, brilliant, bright, white light. A transformation. And this is the way Paul describes the Christian life. He says, be ye transformed. But when you look at that statement a little more clearly, it actually sets forth a dilemma. And what is that dilemma? Well, it's found in the phrase... He says, be ye transformed. Here he's speaking about the believer as the subject of the transformation. So really the theme of my message is the transformation of the believer. The verb here is in the present tense. And the mood of the the verb is a command or what we call an imperative. So maybe I could say it this way. You be being transformed. So he is commanding you and I to do something, and it is to be a perpetual process in our life. It's not something where we arrive, but we continue on being transformed. But herein lies the dilemma. And that is the mood of this verb is in the passive. Well, what does that mean? It means that the subject, you, is being acted upon. You are receiving the action of transformation. It means, if I could say it this way, you are being commanded to do something 
that someone else must do to you. And therein lies the dilemma. You're commanded to do something or to be something, but actually you can't do it. Somebody else has to do it to you. In other words, you're commanded to be transformed, but someone else has to be the transformer. And of course, who is that someone? And the answer we know is God. And Paul lets us see it even in a more expanded way as he continues the phrase. Look at what the phrase says. He says, be ye transformed. And then notice he says, by the renewing of your mind. Now, Paul does something here, which I find to be very fascinating. And that is when he typically writes, uh, like when he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the word by is a preposition, which is the idea of through or by the means of. So how are we transformed by the renewing of our mind? And when we look at the word renewing, typically that's what we call a participle it's a kind of a verb. But in this, these, in, in this phrase, there are no verbs and there are no prepositions. There's only two nouns. So it reads this way, be transformed, renewal, the mind. And in those two nouns, we actually have the idea of understanding, if I could say it this way, sort of solving the, the dilemma. The first word is the word renewal. That's what we could call the divine side. So like we would say, uh, uh, the inner city renewal project, okay? That's the idea of the word. It refers to something new, something different, something superior, something higher and better. It's like when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And what was the response of the wedding coordinator, the master of ceremonies? The master of ceremony said that the wine was better than anything they had drank previously. It was a better quality. It had been transformed. And so what Paul is saying is that we as believers are to go through a metamorphosis. And it is a renewal. But it is something that Jesus must do in our lives. He is the transformer. He is the renewer. But then there's a second word, or a second noun, and that's the word mind, and that's more the human side. And we could almost call it, this is the sphere, or this is the realm, this is the place where transformation takes place. It takes place in your mind. And the word for mind here has to do with the way of thinking, okay? It's like the demon-possessed man who was delivered from a legion of demons, of devils, by Jesus. And afterward, where did they find him? The people saw him sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right what? That's called a senior at Bob Jones, not a freshman. So... Where does the transformation take place? It takes place in the way that you think. And you could say it this way. It's a whole new way of thinking. That's the transformation Paul commands us to experience in our life. 
that only God could do. So how does this work? Well, I think it's one thing to know this. I think it's another thing to experience this. I think we would all agree that our living level is generally lower than our knowing level. In other words, I'm probably not saying anything to you today. You think, man, I've never heard this in my life. But living is one thing. Knowing is another thing. We are too often, we we have areas, for example, in the way that we think that are more aligned with the maniac than the master. Or perhaps we often feel like we have run out of the good wine that is the joy of Christian living, and we're more like the, the wine that is at a lower level or a lesser level of quality. So let me go back to my question, and that is, how does this transformation actually work? And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 12, where I want us to look at, at the Apostle Paul who experienced Two transform, who went through two transformative experiences. We find it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read it in the ESV because I think it's a little bit easier and I don't have to explain all the words uh, that sometimes we get in, in the King James Version. But the first experience of transformation he went through was, the, was an experience of exaltation. And here, Paul goes through an experience, and he says, I don't know if it's out of the body or in the body. I think we can all sometimes experience that, where maybe we're sitting in a class or even a Sunday morning service, and the preacher's preaching, and my mind goes out where, somewhere else. I'm, I'm kind of an out-of-body experience. Well, this is not Paul. He went through an experience. He didn't know he was in the body of, or out of the body, but he was called up, as he describes it, to the third heaven or paradise And he sees things that he couldn't even explain. And let me read to you beginning in verse 1. He said, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. By the way, who is that man? If you read on, it's very clearly Paul's talking about himself. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise where in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, he said, they're unspeakable. I can't even explain it. So Paul here is speaking about an experience that he had where he entered into the very presence of God. Now, when did this take place? Well, Paul said it was 14 years ago from the time that he wrote 2 Corinthians. So when was that in his life? Well, if you'll go back and think about it, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from northern Greece. We call that Macedonia. And Corinth was in southern Greece. It was in a region called Achaia. And he writes this somewhere around 55 to 56 AD. So if you go back... 14 years, that's around 41 to 42 AD. So where was Paul at that time? Well, we know Paul's life's timeline. For example, Jesus rose from the dead about 30 AD. Historians tell us that Paul was saved somewhere around 33 AD. We know he spent three years in a desert. That takes us to 36 AD. He spent two weeks in Jerusalem where he met Peter and James. 
And then he ends up right after that going up to his home, Tarsus, in the, in the region called Cilicia. And we know in 46, excuse me, 50, uh, around 55, no, let me see, let me back it up. Yeah, 36, around 46 AD, we know Barnabas comes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. So 41, 42 is right in the middle of his time. We call those the silent years as he was living in Tarsus. That's where he was. So this is when the experience took place. And what was this, what was it? What, let me ask you this. Was this experience a unique experience? And I think we'd all say, yes, of course. There was no precedent to it, at least, at least as we understand. But when you read the Bible, there were actually many men who had dreams and visions. Many men. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Solomon, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah, all of these men had unique visions of God. We know Peter had a vision when a sheet was let down from heaven while he was praying that had all kinds of unclean animals on it, and God said, eat. We know John had a vision. It's called the book of the Revelation. As he was in a cave on the island of Patmos. And we know that Paul had more than one vision. When he was in Troas, did not a man of Macedonia come to him in a dream and say, come over and help us? When Paul was in Corinth, did he not have a night vision when the Lord appeared to him and encouraged him? And he said, keep on preaching. I have many people in the city. So we go back before the completion of scripture. And there were many godly spiritual men who did have special visions. So my point is, certain special and godly men who sought God in prayer throughout the Bible were given special privileges of seeing God. I mean, does not the Bible say that the pure in heart shall see God? And let me say, though we will not see visions and we will not see dreams, it doesn't mean that we will not see the Lord in a unique way through his word as we pray and we seek his face. And so as a result, God was concerned about Paul's response to the vision that he saw. And what was the concern? Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Maybe I should say it this way. When he came back to the real world and back into reality, the old Paul was still with him. And so God was concerned that this vision would cause him to become conceited or proud or arrogant. And now we see Paul's second transformative experience. And that was not an experience of exaltation. It was an experience of humiliation. And so what does God do? God gives Paul a thorn in the flesh. And what was the purpose? It was a means or it was a process through which God would transform Paul. 
where he would, through God's power, have a whole new way of thinking that he would begin to think humbly at a new and a different level. So the intention of the process was to transform him into a more humble person. I mean, think about it. How easy would it be to be conceited? And it's interesting, the word conceited there is the idea of being puffed up with the implication of disparaging other people. Like, for example, I'm smart, that means you're what? I'm strong, that means you're what? I'm rich, that means you're... I mean, let's be honest. If you spent all that time up in heaven, you had to come back to earth. I mean, you know, nobody else is like you. So God took him through a transformational process because his humiliation was as important as his exaltation. So what's that process? And this is what I want to focus on as we will eventually, eventually come to the end of the message. Um, But what is the process that he took Paul through? Because obviously this was written for you and I. Because if we are called to be transformed, commanded, and it's not something that we can do, we need to understand how it works. What's the process? And Paul is not just a unique case because everybody here can identify with Paul through a thorn in the flesh. So what's the process, okay? I'm going to give you, it's not like step one, step two, step three, but you'll see it clearly. There are four basic points I want to make. And the first point of this process is it starts with pain. So it says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, uh, revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. The word thorn there means something that brings great trouble and something that's very difficult, something that is painful. And in this case, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. So so what is the flesh? Well, the word flesh can mean different things based on context. For example, it could refer to the human body. Job said, in my flesh, I I shall see God. That's his body. It can refer to human strength. For example, the apostle Paul said, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? That's human effort, self-effort. And then, of course, the word refers to sinful, corrupt human nature. For example, Paul says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So you've got human strength, human body, human nature. So what is the thorn in the flesh? Is it, is it something that is in the body? Is it physical? Is it something that is in your, your sin nature? Is it something that you try real hard to overcome and you can't? Which one is it? Or is it all of them? i like you to consider that it actually is probably all three. It was probably some physical problem where Paul began to really struggle emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Anybody who's ever had any prolonged sickness, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
because it is hard emotionally. It is a suffering in your body physically, in your mind mentally, and oftentimes you experience a whole new level of temptations that you've never experienced before in your life. It was a thorn in the flesh, and he found himself not being able to get over it. Where as hard as he tried, he felt like he could pick himself up and he wasn't, and soon after that he was falling back down. So it was a thorn in the flesh. But Paul, but God also, well, Paul also gives greater clarification to that thorn. He says it was a means by which Satan harassed him. Where he buffeted him in the King James. It means he beat him down. It was a means by which Satan spoke into his life. And of course, if you're going through physical issues and temptations and personal failure, what an opportunity for Satan to speak into your life, to beat you down, to speak of your unworthiness. To say that you can never get over. To say that obviously this is happening in your life because God, you've done something wrong and you must suffer for that. So the struggle was real, mental, emotional, spiritual. And it all came because of pain points, thorns in the flesh. And But Paul is saying here, As this process, this is actually the means by which God transforms you. Think about it. Who else had thorns? Think of the crucifixion of Jesus where he wore a crown of thorns as a representation of his own crucifixion. But we know it was through the crown of thorns, the suffering of Jesus, which is the doorway to resurrection, to transformation. But let me ask you a question. Does a thorn in the flesh guarantee you're going to be transformed? Yes or no? The answer is no. Because what what does that thorn bring out? It brings out all kinds of stuff. It brings out our emotions, our pride, our anger, our lust, our bitterness. Our fear. You remember Peter was tempted when Jesus said, he said, Peter, Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And we learn very quickly that in all of the trials of life, there's always two sides, like two sides to a coin. There's God's side and there's the devil's side. God wants to build you up and Satan wants to tear you down. But we understand that the pathway to transformation is through pain. So if you're going through pain, you are in the process. But then notice, secondly, not only was there pain, but there was prayer. Paul says in this passage of Scripture concerning the thorn in the flesh, he said, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So what did he do when he was in pain? He does what we all do, what we should do. We should pray. And he asked God to remove the thorn Three times. Three in the Bible is a number of testimony. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. It was quite clear. Paul was testifying. I want this out of my life. What have you asked God to take out of your life? What is the pain point? When you ask, Lord, how long will I have to endure this? 
We know fundamentally that prayer is the means by which God changes things. We know that. The question is what changes. Jesus prayed three times to have something removed like Paul. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. However, we know Jesus' prayer also included the complete surrender of his will to God's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Prayer changes things. But in the case of Paul, the primary change that needed to take place was in his thinking. The way that he thought. What was God's goal in Paul's thorn It was to change him into a more humble man. For the exaltation could have led to being conceited, but it was this thorn that brought him into a place of humiliation. What was Paul desiring in his request? In his request, was he aligning with the will of God? He He was praying what we all naturally think. The problem is the thorn. If I have the thorn removed, I will be better off. However, we all know that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's intention, and this is what we often struggle with, is that God was wanting to change you. What is prayer? It is getting me into a place where I learn to align with God, his purposes, pursuing his will. Surrendering to his will, yielding to his will, a giving up of my way and my rights, getting myself into a state of contentment and satisfaction with God, regardless of my circumstances. Prayer is the starting place where God begins to change my thinking. My wife said to me in our early stages of marriage, She said, I'm so glad you go into the prayer closet because when you come out, you're a whole lot easier to live with. What is the process? And it is a process. There's pain, there's prayer. And then number two, excuse me, number three, continuing our alliteration. And you could use a variety, but I would like to to submit the word power with the caveat through weakness. For notice what Paul says when he asked God to remove the thorn. He said, but God said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said to Paul, I'm not going to remove the thorn, but I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you sufficient grace. The word grace there means divine enablement. That's the idea of it. It's the supernatural ability to do that which I cannot naturally do by myself. I am not naturally humble. Grace says, I can't. But God, you can. This thorn in the flesh, this struggle that I go through, I cannot overcome that. I've tried and I've failed. But God, I know there is sufficient grace. What does it mean? It means adequate enough to bring you to a point of satisfaction and contentment where I can trust in the Lord. He is saying grace is more than enough. And then he tells us using a preposition, here's why grace is sufficient because he says four, here's why my power 
is made perfect in weakness. Now, what does that mean? The word power is the, is the word we use the word for dynamite, dunamis. It's God's supernatural power. It's a synonym for grace, grace and power. The word perfect or perfect means to accomplish or fulfill something, to make something happen. Here is why grace is sufficient, because he tells us that my power makes something happen through your weakness. You supply the weakness, God supplies the power. It's an unbeatable combination. God's power works or accomplishes something in you that could only come through weakness. Well, what was the weakness? Was it the thorn? Or was it Paul's pride and conceit? And the answer is yes. The weakness of his circumstance, thorn, revealed the weakness of his own internal spiritual condition or character. He was conceited. And it was through the recognition of this weakness that Paul suddenly became dependent on God's power. God opened his eyes through his weakness. Paul had to see that the thorn was changing the way that he thought about himself. We use another term in spiritual language to describe this experience of seeing your weakness or God, God bringing, fulfilling his power through your weakness. We call that, another phrase we use, and we used it for years, is called brokenness. What does it mean to be broken? It means that you move from being self-dependent to being God-dependent. Where I'm trying to control, I, I struggle with fear, I struggle with that, and I, and I try to overcome it in my own self-effort. And I realize I'm a failure. God's trying to bring you to a point of weakness. Why? So that he can make something happen in your life. Where he can demonstrate his power. And Paul began to realize what God was doing. The thorn brought him to a place where God gave him power and grace to overcome both the thorn and his pride through humble dependence. That's the process. And that leads me to the last point. Because this is the last point in the process. And that's the word praise. Because we see Paul's response when he made a deliberate choice to do the very opposite of his natural way of thinking, he shifted his boasting. And I want to go back to verse 1, and I just want to read a few verses and think of it this way. Paul was telling us, he was, he was giving us a trajectory of what was going on in his life beginning in verse 1. Notice he said, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. There's no value in it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Let me explain to you. He says, I know a man in Christ. And he began to explain the exp- the, the, his experience. Now, j- jump to verse 5. He said, on behalf of this man, that's the guy that was taking up the glory, I will boast. But on my own behalf, that's me down here, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I, sh- if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, I have the right to boast, but I'm not going to do that. 
I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Now we drop down to verse 9. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When Paul said, I will boast, King James says, I will glory. It's the idea of a high degree of confidence. I will boast all the more. Gladly, I will do it with happiness. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I have come to the place where I can praise and rejoice and thank God for this thorn. Because in it, God has demonstrated his power where God has made me something I'm not. God has made me a humble person. And that's the way he was transformed Instead of being conceited and proud through his weakness, he was humble. And God did this through the process. So when did God change him? When did God transform him? And my response is, it was the whole process. The pain, the prayer, the power, and then the praise. And I think as we finish, I think it's important to say one thing. And this is the thing that we're all challenged with. We have to trust the process. We really do. That our God is good. And all those pain points have a purpose. God is transforming me. And making me, in the end, like him. And so whatever it is, physical physical thorns, verbal thorns, Financial thorns, spiritual thorns, natural, governmental, distressing thorns. All of those pain points are taking me through a process of transforming me into his likeness. So we go back to Romans 12 too. You be transformed. Father, thank you for your goodness and your word. Thank you for the work that you do in our lives. We thank you... Lord, for your incredible patience. And I thank you for each one in this building who are all in a process of being transformed. And Lord, I pray that you will grant them sufficient grace. Give them, Lord, the ability to see and change the way they think so that they will see that through your power, you are fulfilling your purposes through our weaknesses. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. God bless.